Continued interviews from Studio HFL are made possible through the support of Messina Covers, Eastman Music Company, Pickett Blackburn, S.E. Shires, and through the generosity of Patreon subscribers. Trumpet players can be kind of picky when it comes to cases, perhaps even more so than other brass instrumentalists. If you have an idea for a custom case, then Messina Covers has your solution for completely custom case designs, even down to crazy color schemes. Let's not forget about options for mouthpiece pouches, or pretty much anything you'd want to keep protected in a custom case. Check them out at MessinaCovers.net. If you're looking for excellence in trumpets, trombones, horns, and tubas, you need look no further than the Eastman Music Company and S.E. Shires. Eastman offers a complete line of brass instruments, from the beginner all the way up to the professional. And you know they're invested in creating a quality product when the legendary Doc Severinsen helped design Eastman's beginner trumpet model. You can find more information about the Eastman Music Company at EastmanWinds.com and you can learn more about the S.E. Shires line of instruments at SEShires.com. Pickett Blackburn has established themselves as a top-tier resource for trumpet players. If you haven't had a chance to try any mouthpieces available through Pickett, you can check them out online at picketblackburn.com. And on the Blackburn side of Pickett Blackburn, it would be worth your while to check out their incredible line of trumpets endorsed by such great musicians as Vince DiMartino. Be sure to check them out at picketblackburn.com, and that's Pickett with two T's. And before today's interview, just a reminder that you too can be a financial supporter for this podcast by subscribing at patreon.com slash studiohfl. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash studiohfl. There are four tiers of support, and you can choose the one that best fits your budget. Your support will help offset the cost of production for this podcast and would be greatly appreciated please consider becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash studiohfl. And now, on to today's interview with your host, Larry Powell. Larry, I've been going through your web presence. You have some really impressive stuff out there. You've got a whole list of interviews on this uh, yeah. website or this platform, and even some trombone players there. Yeah, so eventually, uh, not eventually, originally, this was HFL stood for Higher, Faster, Louder. <laughs> And it still does, but not too long ago, I changed it to Hear From Legends, which I think yeah. is more, it's, it takes us out of the trumpet world for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've had the good pleasure of interviewing people like Joe Alessi and Abby Conant. It's just, and even some local, like Blake Schlabach, I've interviewed him, mm -hmm. some really fine low brass players. And yeah, people can check the list there, but that's what this is, an opportunity to sit down with people like yourself who've talk about reading about experience you look at your cv and it's oh my gosh <laughs> you've done and played with just about every orchestra somebody could name and well uh, if you stick around long enough you get to do a lot of stuff yeah I guess. yeah yeah no it's quite uh, impressive yeah, I've, had, I've had a lot of great experiences and and i think back on many of them frequently so how mm -hmm. long have you been doing all these interviews i started two years ago this august Wow. And Conrad Jones was my first interview. I saw that. And I started out um, with kind of a pedagogical focus. And then I realized pretty quickly, it's just great to sit down and have conversations about life and music. And the, it's not that we go without direction on these interviews, but it's really about exactly that, life and music. 
Yeah. And in other circumstances, we might be doing this over a lunch break from Airborne Studios or something. Yeah, exactly. First of all, I was going to say earlier, I like the shameless promotion of the uh, Rafael Mendez Brass Institute. <laughs> yeah. Right there. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Unfortunately, so when I, when I was thinking that this was live, this would have been the perfect time to, to plug it. It's always a, a high point of my summer. It's a great group and it's a great institute. They've built it up. We've been at the University of Denver, Lamont School of Music, I think easily 12, 15 years. Mm -hmm. Before that, we were in Boulder for a couple years. And before that, when I first joined 20 some years ago, we were at uh, CCM in Cincinnati. But I they, had no idea it was here in the Midwest. Yeah, yeah, that's where it started. And they got a new dean years and years ago, and he decided to not support it anymore. But we've ended up out in Denver, and it's a great fit. We have the whole mm -hmm. Denver brass uh, and the brass faculty from DU and all sorts of things. And it's just a great part of the country to be in. So, Yeah, does Al Hood host that, or is he part of that? He's now? a co-host. He's a yeah. co-host. The, the DU faculty really uh, carry a lot of the load, mm -hmm. along with uh, a couple of members of Denver Brass. Yeah, I and I've been doing that... Uh, 21 or 22 years already. How did you get involved with that? Uh, Summit Brass is, is the group, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, 1998 was my uh, last year in Germany. And I had already interviewed at IU and was offered a job. Mm -hmm. And Summit Brass was doing a European tour. And they, they had to keep an eye on the budget. And so they, they hired me, and that saved them a round-trip airfare from the U.S. <laughs> I was there already. Okay. And I played euphonium and trombone, which uh, was another cost saver. So that was mm -hmm. my first time with the group, and it was marvelous. Uh, the trombone section was Scott Hartman, Mel Jernigan, and John Lofton and I. <laughs> and the trumpets and horns, you, you probably know the, the whole crew. Right. It's just a right. great group. We've done a couple tours since then around the country, usually universities. But usually, anymore, the, the primary existence of the group is around the Mendez Institute. Mm -hmm. And it's always really neat because we all fly in from different parts of the country or the world. And, and I just love the first rehearsal where the first thing we do is we don't tune up. And then we start playing and just to hear everybody find the middle without talking about play that long, play that short or louder or softer. Everybody just finds the middle. That first mm -hmm. rehearsal is just always special in my mind. Yeah, so we've had some great experiences. We recorded a CD oh, some summers back at the end of the mm -hmm. Institute. Actually, what got us started at the Lamont School of Music was it was our second year in Boulder, and we tagged on an extra day and drove down to Denver and played an opening concert for the Trumpet Guild Conference that was hosted yeah. that year mm -hmm. at the Lamont School. Did you happen to get to that one? I did not get to that one. Yeah, yeah. And so that was the beginning of our collaboration with the Lamont School. Yeah, so Summit Brass has been great. That's a large ensemble, has four trombones, mm -hmm. euphonium, two tubas, four horns, four trumpets. And for the longest time, Milt Stevens conducted a lot, did a lot of the conducting duties. We would mm -hmm. share the conducting duties, some of us. And Was uh, Sam Palafian part of that group? He was when I first started, yeah. And that was how I got to know him. And what mm -hmm. an incredible personality and musician. Mm -hmm who left us way too early, of course. Agreed. But he he left the group, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so. Mm -hmm. uh, don't know why. He's He was always so busy on so many fronts. It was probably well, one thing too many for him. You, so. you mentioned Scott Hartman, and so I started thinking about Empire Brass people who may have been involved with that group along the way. And I'm curious curious well, if Jeff Kerno or if Rolf or any of those guys had ever been part of that. 
neither of them, Mark Lawrence, who did a year with Empire, uh, he's a founding member of Summit Brass. Mm-hmm. So Scott and Sam, oh, was Marty Hackleman in Empire? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. He was in the group until a few seasons ago. But I don't know if there's any trumpet overlap, though. So you're doing all your teaching online currently, right? Yeah, and it's not terrible, but it will not replace. It just won't replace sitting next to your teacher or student. It's just, unless we're all on the absolute best equipment. And and it's not a a level playing ground most of the time. Even then, the best equipment is the one thing, but the internet transmission it really undermines even the best equipment. Yeah, I avoided Skype lessons like the plague for years, and then the plague forced them on me this year around. And, and uh, it's not as bad as, as I thought. And I developed a couple strategies that, frankly, I'm going to take back over into normal teaching. Mm-hmm. One is I'm having students submit a 10-minute video two days in advance of the lesson, which really helps because then you hear them with good audio quality. And not only that, it gives me a head start on the lesson. And I'll I'll respond to that and say, okay, we're going to work on this and that. And and then listen to what you did here. We're going to have to address that. I'm going to uh, carry that over back into face-to-face teaching. That's a great idea. I may steal that from you. (laughs) (laughs) It's yours. Uh, And the other thing is then I have the students uh, write up a lesson report shortly after the lesson and submit it to me. Mm -hmm. And then I keep a, a running email thread with each student. And that gives us both an overview of what we've done, what we're looking ahead to. And this is something I could have been doing for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple good things to be had from it. And then we've had a, a string of master classes. Paul Pollard and I swapped mm-hmm. master classes with various colleagues. I had Weston Sprott and Henry Henniger and Sarah Paradis do master classes for us, and then I reciprocated. And boy, there are some people out there who are Zoom virtuosi. <laughs> it's incredible. I'm yeah. nowhere near near that, but they can do stuff on Zoom pull up screenshots. Good. I think I could do that if I had a couple Mm -hmm. minutes and annotate them. But so one of the seminars I'll be taking part in out in Mendez is how has this current situation changed careers? Like what new careers are coming out and and what, how are old ones being changed? And a couple things is the technology to music ratio is just off the charts on the technology side through all of this, which, you know, I, I kind of, resent wasting time on technology, but we have to do it. And also, well, you see some of these productions, some some big orchestras you've been putting out, like a whole orchestra on on Zoom doing the last movement of Beethoven 9, or what do I know? And so there's obviously obviously some studio engineer assembling all that, or maybe it's an orchestra member with that kind of technology chops. So that's all developing. You you say uh, you avoided it like the plague, but the plague forced this upon you. But Imagine what it had, what it, we would have done, which is nothing, had we not had technology. We wouldn't have, exactly. our, our semester would have stopped when it did. There wouldn't have been yeah. any continuation of lessons or anything like that. There wouldn't be online teaching through the summer. There, so it's okay. It's not the greatest. It's, it's not filet mignon. Uh, yeah. But it looks like meat, so maybe it's going to be okay. <laughs> Yeah, if this had been 15 years ago, yeah, exactly. We we wouldn't have been able to do anything in music teaching. We have a house full here currently, as I like to say, five distance teachers, two grandchildren, and a double bass player. And I'm the only one distance teaching in music. And the others are K through three, or my wife is teaching uh, high school. Mm -hmm. And then we have um, also an elementary school teacher from Chicago who was with us. Mm -hmm. And they 
each of their experiences has been different with the distance teaching, especially our son who teaches in Chicago public schools. So many of their students don't have internet no. even. And, and so this has really pushed the divide even further. And my wife noticed with her junior high and high school students at a small Christian school here, the good students, they embraced it, they seized it, and they profited from it. And then there are students who, for whatever reasons, either lack of infrastructure or lack of, of parental support or whatever, mm-hmm. just slid off the back end of things. So it's been very revealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, Go ahead. I've got two kids, and or I have three boys, but one's 31 and out of the house for a long time now. But the other two, thankfully, my wife, she took over the teaching load when uh, they were here. But you realize just how little seventh grade math you remember or how little fourth grade curriculum. <laughs> it's like, it wasn't as easy for her or, or me if I ever tried to help out with that stuff. It just was not easy. I really appreciate what the teachers are doing, but I cannot imagine how we're going to go back to this in the fall. And and, and even if, if everybody, like you're saying, was on a level playing field with the right internet and the right motivation, it's just, I, I don't think it's going to be as effective in the long run yeah and what i miss the most from face-to-face teaching is playing duets in real time with my Mm -hmm. students Mm -hmm. and so i'm planning to be face-to-face at least half time in the fall Mm -hmm. there are a lot of issues and of course i'm sure you're experiencing the same thing we have we have committees studying all this stuff (laughs) and making recommendations and it's all dependent upon how things develop. Right. When we have a student body of 30 some thousand students come back to Bloomington, what's that, what's that going to do to the health scene? Uh, so we've got to be ready to react. But one thing I've been doing in lieu of playing duets with my students is I've been making friends with the Audacity program. And I've been layering quartets or just playing individual duet parts and sending mm-hmm. them out to my students for them to record theirs to it and send it back. And the Audacity thing, it, GarageBand would do it also, but Audacity goes on both PC and Mac, so I went mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. And again, the technology curve is pretty steep. On the other hand, you learn a lot of stuff, analyzing your track and synchronization and all mm-hmm. sorts of other things. And to be on what I call the red light spot, when the red light's on and you're being exactly. recorded. Yeah. And that's a skill that, that I think students need to master. You could simulate it in the studio just with a red light bulb, but, but with the recording we're doing, you've got to lay it down. Well, um, and exactly. And, and you know, also, spend hours. Yeah, go ahead. No, if they're using click like we do in the studio, I mean, if they're not good friends with a metronome uh, already, they're going to become good friends with one because you can't just play along with the track. I, I don't know if you're laying your tracks down with a metronome uh, no, I'm avoiding that... it. Oh, okay, okay. For the most part, because I'm recording stuff that beautiful phrases with ebb and flow, and that makes it when you record a second, third, and fourth track to it, of course, that makes it a challenge. I do have a count in, so we start together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I, I'll lay down the lead voice first, and mm-hmm. it's phrasing it as nicely as I can, and then, then the bass voice to that. And one thing I've been doing a lot of, actually, and it's been keeping me going have been my church choir assignments. Since March, we've put together a church service online every Sunday. There are about six of us taking part in this, and we'll mm-hmm. record our individual parts and send them to the choir director who assembles it all. And a lot of it comes out sounding pretty good. Mm-hmm. And so I'll be singing, well, I sing bass normally, mm-hmm. but then I'll also sing the tenor part because we're a little short of tenors, and then I mm-hmm. sing the melody down an octave. So that's 
for a hymn with four verses, that's 12 verses of singing right there, and then three <laughs> hymns a week. And then I've been adding instrumental tracks, too, on select hymns, where I'll, I'll just lay down all, all four parts, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, with a trombone, and send it in. And so that's been keeping me going. It really has been. It's slowing down a little bit for the summer, but I've got a couple projects in there. And I've been posting some of these things on my Facebook, and some of them, you know, come off pretty good for, for an yeah. amateur guy <laughs> trying to make friends with, with a program. Yeah. Um, Maybe amateur in terms of the program, but certainly not an amateur <laughs> musician, no. Yeah. I want to go back and ask you about your teaching. I love the idea of them having to submit a video uh, a couple days before the lesson, but do you ever have your students grade their own lesson? I, I know that you wouldn't trust them to submit that grade at the end of the semester necessarily, but do you, do you let them take some accountability, some responsibility for what that would actually earn? Is that a B? Is this an A? Is this? Uh, not with letter grades. What I started doing a couple lesson cycles ago is when they submit their recording, I'll say, okay, before I share my notes with you, I want you to share yours with me and mm -hmm. to see what you thought was good, uh, what might need improvement. And so I'm drawing them out that way. I'm not thinking in terms of letter grades, but I'm asking for their critique before I offer mine. And mm -hmm. it's interesting to see where you agree, where you overlap, and where we're seeing different things. Why do you do that? I'm considering it only because you give them, I, I try to let my students know how they're doing along the way so that their midterm grade is not a surprise or their final grade is not a surprise. But I think giving them, if they read my, I'm blanking on the term, my rubric, if they understand the grading rubric, if they were to apply that to you know, themselves, what, would they, what kind of grade would they come up with? And I think they need to understand what the standards are, what the expectations are for that. And so I'm considering it. We'll see. For the most part, I'm a pretty easy grader for my students. And my students are all pretty ambitious. Application, progress. There are some plain instances that get graded, like a jury, upper divisional, a recital. Sure. They get graded straight up. But... Yeah, I don't like to send messages with grades. If I have something to tell them, I'll just tell them for the most part. And where, where the grade starts falling is, is if they start, what do I know, missing lessons or whatever, sure. which almost never happens. Sure, sure. So, yeah. Let's, uh, let's switch gears just a little bit. Of course, I know the teaching has been, what did you say, 21 years, 22 now at, at IU? Yeah. Uh, but Since you still are performing... A uh, tremendous amount. I know I see you with the Indianapolis Symphony. In fact, one of the most memorable experiences was Mahler 7. Well, I don't know how many uh, years ago, not all that long ago, but I think you were you playing bass trumpet on that? No, I was playing the tenor horn part. The big solo at, towards the beginning of the piece, right? In the first movement, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was just gorgeous. It was <laughs> just that's your playing and sometimes I'm sitting in front of you in a Hal Leonard session and you're playing euphonium and it's just it's the silkiest smoothest most beautiful sound and you're so kind and, and I but came, let me speak a little bit to, go ahead I just want to say and I even came down to a master class a trumpet master class and you and Ed Cord did cousins or something like that it was one of those fun duets and I've always been impressed with Ed's playing but that that I was again blown away by, by your musicality. That's just, but that's why you are where you are, and that's why you play with the people you play with. It's well, just spectacular. Thank you for all that, Larry. Let me get back to Mahler Seven a little bit because it's often misunderstood. It's a tenor horn part, not a tenor tuba part. 
Taubenleben, Don Quixote, those are tenor tuba. That's your, basically your euphonium. A tenor horn is a much smaller instrument. Uh, it's oval-shaped, like a Wagner tuba. It comes from the Alpine folk music. And it's even a little bit smaller than a, a conventional American baritone horn. And so, in the very first time I did it on my euphonium, because that's all I had, that was many years ago, when I did it with Indianapolis, I did not yet have a proper tenor horn, but I used my baritone horn, an old con baritone horn, mm-hmm. and it had a swivel bell on it to pack it in the case. And so I turned the bell 90 degrees, so it, it had the <laughs> oval effect. <laughs> mm-hmm. But since then, I have a, a, a tenor horn, a proper tenor horn that I've played a couple times. Mm-hmm. And it's currently in Minneapolis with Doug Wright because they recorded Mahler 7 last year. They're releasing mm-hmm. it right around now. Mm-hmm. And the last time they did Mahler 7, I played the tenor horn part, but for the recording, of course, then Doug did it. And mm-hmm. so I lent him my tenor horn. And, and then they're doing an interview with him, I think right around now, around the release of the CD. And they wanted him to interview him about the tenor horn. So I, I packed up the tenor horn and shipped it off to Minneapolis mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. But that's often misunderstood. And even conductors will say, will refer to you as tenor tuba. And it's not a tenor tuba. It's, mm-hmm. it's a different beast. So anyway, mm-hmm. that was my spiel on that. No, that's great. So speaking about Alpine and Bavaria and Switzerland and all that great place over there, you spent a significant portion of your playing career in Germany and Austria, Bavaria, right? Is that, I mean? Yes, yeah. 21 years, and hmm. it was great. Bavarian State Opera, the Munich Opera, for most of it, and then the Bamberg Symphony. Mm-hmm. But also, I subbed, as I subbed with many great orchestras over the years, mm-hmm. and the bass trumpet was my ticket to a lot of places. And it's interesting about the bass trumpet. First of all, I started on valves. I started on the trumpet in third grade. And then, as I like to say, I upgraded the baritone <laughs> horn in fourth grade. Well, I'm going to uh, edit so that out. Valves, Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> valves are, are in there. Uh, and to this day, if I'm thinking through a piece, my mnemonic device is the valves. I'm, I'm not doing this. Mm. It's all here. But anyway, and then I, I added trombone around sixth grade. And that's where my, the bulk of my career went. But when I was in, I think, 11th grade, my older brother, who was an uh, engineering major at Lehigh University, but also very active in the band there, a baritone player himself, came home for a Christmas break. And he said, look what we have in our instrument collection. And it was a Bach bass trumpet he had brought home. Mm. And I took to that thing. I think I played on it every day through Christmas break. Mm -hmm. And he brought it home on a, a spring break. I don't know if I ever had it for a summer vacation. But I just took off with that because I had the whole background with the valves and, and it seemed perfectly normal at the time. 11th grade and my brother brings home a bass trumpet and, and I make friends with it. <laughs> and then a couple years later, I'm a freshman at the, at the Curtis Institute of Music and a couple of us go up to New York City to Jardinelli's to, to look at instruments. And that, so I buy a Bach bass trumpet. Mm. And one of my roommates at the time was a trumpet player. And so I started playing duets with him or even just playing along on Charlie A etudes or what have you. Mm-hmm. And about the same time, I and two of my roommates pulled our resources and bought the entire Schulte Vienna Ring LPs, three box sets. Mm-hmm. And I just listened to grooves off of the, those things. Mm-hmm. And I got the excerpt book and learned, learned all, the, all the licks. The transpositions were, were never a problem for me. I just learned that early. Mm-hmm. Anyway, a year and a half later, I'm in Munich auditioning for the Bavarian State Opera, and the bass trumpet was an important part of that. And every step of the way, it seemed perfectly normal. My brother brought it home, I played it. Yeah, we went to Chardinelli's and I bought one, and then I got to know all this music. But what are the chances of all that happening? When I look back, it's really uh, It was a perfect storm. 
Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and especially, so I got to a lot of opera houses in Germany and Switzerland and Austria, but especially Southern Europe, they didn't have, they don't have bass trumpet players or Wagner tuba players, Italy, mm. Spain, Portugal. And so often I would have uh, these great experiences. I would be brought in for the last work rehearsal, the pre-dress rehearsal, mm-hmm. and then the dress rehearsal. And then every three nights you, you play the big opera, whether you're in Madrid or Barcelona or Florence, and then you have two days off in between. Now, the rest of the orchestra is rehearsing the next production on those two days, mm-hmm. but I'm not involved mm-hmm. in that. Mm-hmm. And so those were wonderful trips. Sometimes our whole Wagner tuba section went along, so there'd be five of us. And so the bass trumpet has been my ticket to a lot of places. Well, here we are in the middle of today's interview. Just a reminder that support for this podcast comes from Messina Covers, who has you covered, literally, for all of your custom case needs. The Eastman Music Company, providing excellence from the professional model to the beginner model. And of course, Pickett Blackburn, providing you with a multitude of options for mouthpieces and trumpets. Now, back to the interview. How is your German? German, rather. My English is not nicht so gut at the moment. but It was not very good. I had, in ninth grade, I had German one with a wonderful teacher. And then in 10th grade, I had German two and... The teacher wasn't quite so wonderful, but neither was the student in that case. <laughs> and so when I got to Germany, you learn, you learn the first couple of things fast. Posaunen zu laut, Posaunen schleppen. <laughs> and then you just go from there. And I didn't take organized coursework, although I probably should have. Mm-hmm. I just did it on my own. And it took me about two years till I was at the point where I could hold my own in any conversation. Mm-hmm. And when you get to that point, every day just propels you further. Sure. And it's something I'm pleased to have learned. And then some years later, oh, after I'd been there 10, 12 years or so, I started writing for the German Trombone Journal, and which was also public. One of the articles was also published in the Union magazine, which is a substantial magazine, Das Orchester. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like our little international musician. And writing really took my language skills up another level because you've got to get it exactly right. So that's something I'm pleased to have learned. And I've... Well, I taught a lot when I was over there, and I've had students here in Bloomington that I teach in German citizens, and I sometimes thought I teach differently in German than I do in English. Interesting. And it has a, maybe less to do with the language than with the two schools of playing. The German school hmm. of playing is a very, and I've got an article on this somewhere on my website, but the German school of playing is very articulation-centric, very articulation-centric and rhythmic, I'd say, in the American school of playing, we're all tone fetishists. And in Germany, I'd be trying to coax the students into, into broader sounds and, and stuff. And in this country, I'm always after them for articulation. So teaching mm-hmm. to the middle. So it's not a language thing that has me teaching differently in the two languages, but rather the, the schools of playing. You're probably, hopefully, a big fan of Minosal Brass. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. When I first started hearing them, the arrangements are great. They're all sp- spectacular musicians. The theatrical part of it has just gotten better and better. But what I love, to me, it's that raw, I I call it blowing straight down the pipe. There's no excuses. And and I wish we played like that here in the States, where Mm -hmm. we just, you let it go. I think we're a little too gentle sometimes in the way uh, that we treat things. But that's one of the things I love about their approach. And I know that's not how all the European groups approach it, but I certainly appreciate the energy that they provide. 
Yeah. And of course, there's a difference between the, the Vienna School of Trumpet Playing and Berlin or, or elsewhere. But basically, they don't put on the, the vibrato like the Americans like to. Mm -hmm. And the sound, this is instrument related, but also concept driven, uh, darker, broader sound. Mm -hmm. The American trumpets are much brighter. I generally don't like to use words like bright and dark, but uh, sure. other words fail me at the moment. Yeah. And if I just think back to say Harry Glantz, or Gilbert Johnson, how, how mm -hmm. they just poured on the schmaltz. It really deserved the, the title solo trumpet. So, <laughs> but yeah. when I go back and listen to recordings also of, of my former orchestra, the Bavarian State Orchestra in Munich, recently I was studying Parsifal with my orchestra repertoire class. And I thought, mm -hmm. I'll pull up a YouTube version of the overture. And, and so I go into YouTube and I think, oh, I'll probably find the old Carrion Berlin. Well, the first hit was my former orchestra with, uh, what's his name, Petrenko, no, the guy who's going to Berlin. And it just sounded phenomenal. And the trumpets stood out to me. They're not so separated from the rest of the brass. It's, mm -hmm. it's all more cohesive, I think. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think the American school of brass playing has polarized. The, the, the low brass get tubbier and woofier, and the trumpets get more, <laughs> what's a better word than, than bright, but yeah. And that brings me to something else. We talked about folk music, Alpine folk music, Bavarian, Austrian, whatever. And there's this great spectrum of sound in the middle of the sound, in the middle of the tonal spectrum. You have, of course, you have your tuba, your bass tuba, your contrabass tuba. You'll have a tenor tuba. Then you have the, the tenor horn, which is a much brighter sounding low brass instrument. And then you have your flugel horns. And the, the French horns and the trumpets are usually just da -da -da -da, just mm -hmm. rhythmical, but you'll have the flugelhorn and the tenor horn carrying melodies and counter melodies. And I don't find that whole middle of, this, of the spectrum in American bands, mm -hmm. say, or even orchestra sections. And it's something I've pondered a lot. And I think the, the principal trombone job is to help create the bridge to the trumpets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet sometimes you feel yourself as a trombonist being pulled gravitationally downward to the tuba. Mm -hmm. And so along those lines, I collaborated with the B&S Instrument Company for many years, mm -hmm. changed not too long ago when the company got bought up by Buffet. Uh, that put all my projects on hold apparently, but I designed a, an alto trombone for the 21st century orchestra. And it's a larger bore alto with a larger bell that can step right into a trombone section. Nobody has to scale down on, on second and bass. It, it just fits right in. And it also enhances that bridge to the trumpet section. Mm -hmm. And I've got two of them. I had the prototype and the first production model. That's as far as it went. And every trombone player I know who has seen it, heard it, or played it, loves it. Mm -hmm. And would love to get one, but it's not being produced currently for Well, hopefully they'll pick reasons. back up on that before. Well, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway, I promised to ramble on about stuff, and, and here I am rambling. No, and, so and, go it's, ahead. and it's all good. My little bit of experience with Austrian folk music was when I was living in D.C., I was in the Air Force, and I was playing in a community band called the Alta Kameraden. And it was led by a first-generation immigrant, Sam Laudenschlager. <laughs> and he had with him a book of 300-plus, easy 300-plus tunes and it was a polka band and we wore the later hosen and did the whole thing those were the hardest best arrangements 
I've ever played. And I never knew there was such a thing as a double DS until I wrote. And the roadmaps on these things were, <laughs> were you, you looked at it before you played a note. Where the heck am I going on this piece? And oh, some of the most fun. And I was playing second or third trumpet on some of that stuff. But stylistically, what I learned was this is not American music. <laughs> and you learned the Tiroler backbeat or whatever, however they mm-hmm. referred to it. And which is something I wish we did a little bit more of when we did waltzes and things here in the States. But anyways, that's my two cents. And of course, it was in Virginia that I got to play that. It's not like I got to play it in Austria. But yeah, so did you do a a fair amount of that while you were over there? A couple things. Yeah, a a fair amount, a a little bit. And every once in a while, I'd even play with a community band, sit in with a community band in a beer tent. And so basically amateur players, but passionate and they knew their stuff. Like, of course you had a flat in the trio. Come on, you're a professional musician. You don't know that? <laughs> or, or the roadmap that you mentioned. Mm. So it was always fun. And, and to get the rhythm, it gets back to rhythm. And a lot of this stuff, by the way, carries over into Mahler or even Schubert. So that's the one thing. And the other thing is the keeper of the German band library in Bloomington. And that came about this way. This goes back to Bill Bell. Uh, so ancient music history. Mm. When he was out in Aspen, he decided, oh, let's start a German band. And my friend Paul Krizwicki was with him that summer. He was Bill Bell's AI, or everybody else would call it a TA. And so they put a bunch of stuff together and had a great time with it out in Aspen. And then Bell brought it back to Bloomington and did it for some years. As the story goes, they would, they would during exam weekends in the spring, they would just set up on stage and, and just play stuff for fun. And when Bill Bell retired, Louis Van Haney took it over and let it a little bit. And then when Haney retired, Dee Stewart got the library. Mm-hmm. And he did a couple things with it. And then he passed it on to Ed Cord, mm-hmm. and Ed passed it on to me. And so it's a stack of music about that high on one mm-hmm. of my shelves in my studio. I've not done much with it. What I did, I used to teach an orchestra repertoire class, higher brass section. Now I just specialize in the low brass. But mm-hmm. at, the, at the end of the year, we, we had done all of our symphonies and stuff like that and done a little performance. We still had a couple of weeks. I thought, oh, let's just play from the German band folder. Mm-hmm. And, and we had fun with it. But to, to get students to get that lilt and to get the rhythm. Mm-hmm. And I also have little March-sized booklets for, for a brass quartet or quintet that I often use in chamber coachings to get people to play. Well, let me see if I can take an example. You mentioned that the Tyrolean backbeat in the waltz or something like mm-hmm. that, certainly that. But to get us out of that one and two and three and one and whatever the music does. And it's fun to, to watch the students' ears get it. And so it's just a whole layer of musicality that, mm-hmm. that how else are you going to get exposed to it around here? Sure, we're globalized. We could tune into anything we want, really. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I so. think back, I lived in Germany from 70 to 74. My dad was stationed over there. Ah, and right outside of Stuttgart, it was an army base. He was Air Force, but he was posted at the army base. And uh, we visited a lot of places on the weekends. We did a lot of things called Volksmarches, which I don't know they exist anymore. But it's like the 5K is these days here. You get out and you walk and you get your ticket stamped and punched and you get back to the beer tent at the end and everybody has a good time. But maybe four years of that gave me an appreciation for 
how that I didn't live it because we were on an American base, but still you're exposed to it. You hear it everywhere. And my first opera, I'm just now remembering this. I was six and it was the Berlin in Berlin and it was uh, Hansel and Gretel. And Beautiful. I remember sitting in the balcony way second balcony, maybe way up high. And that's all I remember of that. But I can say that was opera was my first uh, real classical musical experience, but yeah, I want to Gretel is just such beautiful stuff. And I want to go back. I was working on a cruise ship, and we were in Hamburg. They just finished the, you'll know, the, the concert house there. Oh, that's We're, supposed to be phenomenal. It's gorgeous from the outside. I never saw the inside, but it was spectacular from the outside. But anyways, enough it's about me. The, it's called the Elbe Philharmonie, I think. Ah, named right. Named for the Elbe River, Right. And built yeah. on a little bit of an island, and they built it on the remains of some factory or something. It, it's really just an ingenious piece of architecture. Mm-hmm. And apparently the inside acoustics are marvelous. I forget the details, but all the surfaces are, are contoured somehow. Yeah, I hope to, hope to get there someday. Yeah. Let me ask you, you've, you've provided some great memories, but... Is there anything that stands out teaching-wise or performing-wise over the years that was just like, this was, wow, this was it? Maybe a performance of uh, The Ring somewhere or Alpine or who knows? Well, gee, on the performance side, I have many outstanding memories. We worked with the world's best singers and conductors, and... It'd be hard to narrow it down, but mm-hmm. a lot of great stuff. And we repeated a lot over the years, of course. How many times mm-hmm. have you played Magic Flute? How many times have you played Schumann Four? <laughs> and yet, it, it actually, I got more out of it the more often we played it. Mm-hmm. When I started in the opera, Magic Flute was one of the first new productions I did. So I had rehearsals for it. And the trombone section of Magic Flute, you play the overture, and then you have 38 minutes off. And then you come in and you play for about another four minutes, and then you have 20 minutes off, and then you play the finale of the first act. And then you have intermission. <laughs> and so I would just follow the colleagues out of the pit. And the longer I stayed there, I would stay in the pit because it's, it magic flute mm-hmm. is just one hit after another. But it was also such uh, the ability to switch from performer to consumer that mm-hmm. uh, wasn't so easy for me as a young player. I was very focused on being able to play my notes I didn't want to be distracted by all the other stuff in between. Mm-hmm. But over the years, I, I would leave the pit less and less because I'd say, oh, well, this aria is coming up. I can't wait to hear how she sings that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was able to you know, just flip the switch from performer to consumer and back. Mm-hmm. And speaking of leaving the pit, it's something, uh, it's a brass player thing, I think, because we were at, uh, yeah, at right. the back <laughs> on the side yeah. and, and the door's right there. What are you going to do? And, and so one time we were doing a new production of Hindemith's opera, Cardillac, which is a fantastic opera. It's based on one of the E.T.A. Hoffman tales mm-hmm. about a goldsmith in Paris. And it's a small orchestra, I think two trombones, very great writing, very frenetic writing, Hindemith. And at the key scene in the opera, the, the key murder, this goldsmith couldn't stand parting with his great creations, and so he'd sell a beautiful gold brooch to one of the high society women in Paris, and then he'd go murder her to get it back. And all of Paris is abuzz with it. They don't know what's going on. Anyway, so this goldsmith is, is sneaking in to murder this woman to get his thing back, and Hindemith 
inserted 60 seconds of silence, mm. which is very effective. And, and 60 seconds is a long time of silence uh, mm -hmm. in, in an opera. So we're rehearsing this, and Wolfgang Savalisch uh, was the boss back then. And he explains this, he says, okay, now around this opera, there's 60 seconds of silence here where the murder takes place. Then he turns to us in the brass and say, and you guys stay in the pit for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no distraction. Yeah. You mentioned the silence, and I think it may have been Mahler 7, where Mahler had actually wanted, between two of the movements, a significant amount of silence. Between the first and the second, I think. And it's, is it maybe 10, 11 minutes or something like that? But can you imagine asking people to sit in total silence? Well, you is, get, is you get on cage did? you get uncomfortable after 10 seconds, right? You, there's yeah. this fidgety anxiety that what's going to happen. But it would be interesting to see how that works. So the 60 seconds of silence in the murder scene, was it effective? Yeah, it was yeah. very effective. But uh, John Cage wrote a piece of silence, didn't he? I forget the, the number of minutes and seconds, but... Uh, 433. Uh, okay, good for you. And I don't think anybody ever does the full recommended Mahler 7th silence because it, it is something like 10 minutes, I think. But I, I think most conductors will at least step down off the podium and, and, and just let the wind out of the sails. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mahler was uh, very creative. As, and he thought outside the box on a lot of things. So, Thank goodness. It's yeah. nice to have people yeah. to, to push things. Okay, so maybe other than a favorite performance, and of course, I used to think Mahler was the greatest, but I'm now hung up between Mahler and Beethoven. I don't know if there's a, a composer that gives me more joy than Beethoven. At least well, from a trumpet playing standpoint, there are moments that are just spectacular. What's that like on trombone? I know you have to wait for the fourth movement sometimes to do anything, but... If even. Let's see. <laughs> of course, naming favorite composers is another one of those things, but I would name three Bs, but Beethoven's not one of them. And this is not just as a trombonist. Bach... Brahms and Bruckner. Mm. And Bach, of course, we have very little to do on the trombone, but I just love it. I'm a pretty amateur piano player, but I love playing my little Bach pieces, mm. my little preludes and fugues. It's just so edifying to me. Mm. Brahms, I love. He just, he just, I think, speaks to my soul. And Bruckner, likewise. I, I just love the way it, it builds in perfect logic and, and unfolds in, in its own perfect time. Mm -hmm. And we did a lot of Bruckner in the Bomberg Symphony. And actually, we did a whole Bruckner cycle with Savalish with the Bavarian State Orchestra also. One that I never got to play is the greatest of them all. I, I never got to play the eighth. Oh. But, yeah. But Maybe somebody around here that. will program that. A couple <laughs> years back, Mike Sachs and was it Joe Alessi? They did that duet. Uh, book. Are you familiar with this? And I yeah. think it's got yeah. some Bach and uh, maybe some Telemann. Yeah. But I really enjoy playing out of that. And it's a whole different approach, right? Than uh, stylistically yeah. than, than playing uh, Haydn or Hummel, for sure. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that book shows up on the music stand in my studio with some frequency, and I'm always glad when it does. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and that gets us back to playing duets and lessons. Yeah, and you don't, you guys don't necessarily transpose, but because you've had to transpose over the years with bass trumpet and such, do you teach that at all in your studio? Yeah, first of all, we do movable, movable clefs, the alto and tenor right. clef. And 
I learned on trumpet in B flat, uh, of course. And I'll never forget in third grade, I took my trumpet home with my first book and the notes are all about that big. And my mother tried to play along on the piano and she was playing in C, of course. She didn't understand anything about trumpet in B flat. Right. And she went and talked to the band director who explained it to her, but I'm not sure she ever really got it. And then when I was in ninth grade, someone explained to me how to read horn and F. And so I just figured that out and did it. And trumpet in D is like alto clef. Trumpet in B flat is like tenor clef. Mm-hmm. Uh, I slowed down a little bit with uh, trumpet or clarinet in A or A flat. If I really want to challenge myself transposition-wise, I go there. <laughs> but yeah, I encourage that. This is reading chops. Treble clef in C is one I push an awful lot because I, f- I feel like at least 80% of all the music in the whole world is in treble clef in C. If you can't read that, are you musically mm-hmm. illiterate? And then my music ed students, I push the transposition even harder because I told them, look, you're going to be standing in front of a band someday and say, okay, horns, goes like this, play it with me, mm-hmm. or whatever, uh, right. clarinets. And so I, I push the transposition with my music ed majors perhaps even more. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a, a story along those lines. Oh, maybe four or five years ago, I really got into some arrangements by the King Singers. I feel the King mm-hmm. Singers. It's, yes. it's a male sextet, just a marvelous singing group. Uh, and they do great stuff like Billy Joel tunes and stuff like that. And so I'm thinking, wow, we could do this with, with a trombone sextet. And so I, I bought I bought the music. You have to buy six copies, Hal Leonard, mm-hmm. <laughs> and took it in the trombone choir probably a rehearsal after we'd finished a concert i'd like to just do some reading and uh, chose six players and i didn't have one who could read treble clef and c oh and they said oh you should arrange it on finale and i said no you should learn how to read music right <laughs> anyway so we got back to it just this past spring right before the the pandemic hit right before the lockdown i got six players and Andrew Danforth was one of the treble clef readers, by the mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And, and I had six players to, that could play it, and that was so rewarding. We had mm-hmm. so much fun with that stuff. Lullaby by Billy Joel, oh, yeah. and She's a Woman. And I'm getting goosebumps just remembering it. It was really <laughs> a lot of fun. But yeah. if you can't read treble clef and C, you're lost. And yeah. I've often thought, so the movable clefs, we trombonists have them because from our choral doubling history, where mm-hmm. we would double the, the voices of the chorus, which were notated in soprano clef, alto clef, tenor clef, tenor clef, and bass clef. And so that's how we get the movable clefs. But I've often thought if you were to start over, it would make perfect sense to notate the trombone up to more or less middle C and bass clef, and then just switch into treble clef and C. Mm. But people can't read it. Yeah. And frankly, a lot of my students aren't nearly as good in alto clef as they should be. Mm-hmm. And for that, I take out my Blatsevich duet book. And when they start stumbling, I'll say, you've got to make friends with Alto Clef, kid. So, yeah. yeah. Whereas the trumpets, you have transposition, the history that led to that, because you're always changing crooks. your crooks. Exactly. But you wanted to read CGC. Yeah, that was the, right, we were stuck on the harmonic series. But still, and I, re- I remember a theory class where the teacher was trying to get us to learn the clefs. But I had already learned how to transpose by interval. And so I just learned that he would say, you know, what clef is this? Well, I would, wasn't reading the mezzo-soprano clef, but I, oh, it's up a perfect fourth. I, <laughs> so he thought I was using clef transposition, but I wasn't. I hope that doesn't revoke my degree. <laughs> uh, for well, here's one for you. So when I was at the Curtis Institute of Music, our solfege classes, we went through all the clefs, mezzo-soprano, baritone, etc. 
And there is a book we used, Pasquale Bona, Rhythmical Studies. And it, it's not really so much about rhythm, but the second part of that is all, I would say, short vocal leases, half a page. Mm-hmm. And we would do them in, well, we would get assigned to do them in various clefts, and we'd have to solfege them. My teacher at the time, D. Stewart, still in the Philadelphia Orchestra at that time, loved that book because of the, the short vocal leases. And, and he would say, okay, now you've got to make great music with this. And one thing he would push is, well, you've got to stay in tempo because in the orchestra, when you finally get a chance to play a solo for four bars, the conductor's going to at least insist that you, that you stay with the beat. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, so he used the same book. So I'd go in for my lesson and say, okay, what do you have for me this week? I say, oh, I thought I would do uh, Bona number 37 in mezzo-soprano clef. He said, oh, and I'd play that. Okay, what else do you have? I thought I'd do number 38 in baritone clef. And he was so impressed until I finally let him in on the fact that I was just doing my solfege assignments in my lessons. <laughs> so, Why not? If you kill two birds with one stone. Exactly. That's great. Yeah, That's great. Yeah. And it's still a good book. I still like to take it out to practice reading chops with my students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Carl, I really want to respect your time. This has been a lot of fun. I've known you casually, I would say. We pass each other in the symphony or the studio or something like that. But this has been a treat getting to know you a lot better. Thank you. Likewise, from my side, I enjoyed delving into your web presence and learning more about Mm -hmm. you. And congratulations. That's great stuff you've got out there. I appreciate that. Thanks so much. Hopefully we'll see each other in person at a gig (laughs) at some point (laughs) in the near future. But In the new um, normal. But thank you so much for your time today and for sharing everything. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Tune in next week for another great interview. And one last reminder that you can help support this podcast by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash studiohfl. Your support would be most appreciated. And another special thanks to Messina Covers, the Eastman Music Company, and Pickett Blackburn for their support of this podcast. Thanks again. Now, go practice. <laughs>